0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the New Books Network podcast, How to Be Wrong. I'm John Keg. I'm chair and professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. I'm the author of um, a number of philosophy books uh, for the general public, Hiking with Nietzsche and Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James, can save your life. I'm joined today by co-host, John Trapagan. Hi, John.
1: Hi. um, I am a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Religious Studies, and um, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I do my work primarily on Japan. And I, too, have written several books, uh, one of the most recent being a book called Embracing Uncertainty, which kind of goes through my experiences as an
0: anthropologist living and doing research in another part of the world. So John, give us give, give everyone a sense of what this is, how to be wrong.
1: Yeah. So how to be wrong is an exploration of mistakes, errors, and the importance of trying to embrace intellectual humility in, in a world that seems increasingly dominated by dualistic or binary and often very simplistically oppositional thinking, argument, and debate. I think we see this routinely in, in the, the political debate that, that goes on in our society. But it's it's happening in all sorts of different places. So over the course of the program, our, our goal here is to talk with academics and artists and authors and other people about their ideas and stories related to things that have gone wrong. I think all of us have made mistakes in what we do. And it's interesting to think about how those mistakes influence our lives and our work, and maybe how these mistakes sometimes infu- infuse a sense of humility into how we approach our profession and our thinking. So that that's, for our, our listeners, that's really our primary
0: goal in this. Um, John, do you want to talk a little bit about today's episode? Sure. So today we want to sort of set the stage for future conversations through a discussion in which we, as two co-hosts or as co-hosts, lays some of the groundwork for the podcast and raise some of the types of questions we plan to explore. So how to be wrong isn't about providing right answers, or always finding silver linings to the problems that we encounter in life. To be clear, it is at least from the outset, an attempt to talk about in a semi structured way, some of the aspects of life that we often are trained to hide, or gloss, namely the errors some grievous, some not so grievous, uh, the errors of life. And our guests will often be extremely successful individuals, so prominent scholars in their field, some of the best writers in the world, leaders in a variety of ways. And we're here to ask them how they've messed up and what they've done in the face of personal or professional disaster. We'll take this opportunity to let listeners learn something about our own experiences with screwing up, and they're not... Few of them. There are a lot of them, and I'd like to begin by asking you, John, about how your own experience as an anthropologist has influenced your thinking about certainty when it comes to your own professional work and your own professional life. Thanks,
1: and and I I think throughout this uh, entire series, we're going to have fun with the fact that we're both named John. This is just going to be interesting. But um, I find that, um, well. Being an anthropologist involves, um, a cultural anthropologist in particular, involves going and living somewhere else for a long period of time. And so I've spent somewhere in the vicinity of five years of my life living in Japan, most of which has been involved in doing research. And um, sometimes I've, I've done other things like teaching there as well. And if you spend a long time in another place, you begin to realize that your own ideas about what's normal and natural start getting kind of undermined. Um, you realize that people do things in different ways that they, and, and as you get more deeply involved in what understanding what they do, you realize it makes sense, but it doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of your own assumptions about the way the world is. And so, um, for me, being an anthropologist is just totally messed with my idea that I can be certain about much of anything in life. Um, I think the other thing that has affected me is that in studying Japan, um, and studying religion in Japan, I've spent a great deal of time studying Buddhism and particularly, uh, Zen Buddhism. And of course, Buddhism is very much about, uh, recognizing that the world is constantly changing, recognizing that it's, um, Certainty is really not something that we can get a hold of. And so when you kind of put the two things together for me, I found that um, being an anthropologist has sort of really kind of attacked the foundation of, you know, my cultural foundation in terms of what it means to just be a person. And then my studying of Buddhism has uh, taken that to, to a more of an intellectual level and really challenged my sense of um, what it means to sort of function in the world and, and, uh, and particularly with Buddhism, what some of the sources of our suffering and our pain are, because Buddhism is really all about asking this question about where does this come from? And it comes from in many ways, the fact that we crave certainty, but we can't find it. And so, um, it's, it's really, you know, being an anthropologist is really, I think not only shaped my life as a, you know, scholar, but really more fundamentally in how I approach the world and think about my interactions with other people. And so um, in kind of asking that, I guess I will, you know, or answering it, I guess I'll turn it back to you and ask, you know, as a philosopher and as a memoirist, because you've done both, you've, you've, you've done kind of regular philosophy, but you, you also write from your own experiences, in fact, uh, one of the things I found about your writing and, you know, like hiking with Nietzsche is a great example of this is that you have kind of almost an anthropologist tone in the way you write philosophy, because you're writing from the experience of being in a place and, and managing, uh, what it is to, to kind of cope with the world. And so how do you think, you know, being a philosopher has affected your ideas about certainty when it comes to either professional or work life or both?
0: Yeah. Um, Pretty radically. I mean, if you, I think in part, what I'd like to do is to give a reader or a listener um, a sense of where I'm coming from as a philosopher and how it gears me toward certainty and uncertainty. So as a kid uh, growing up in central Pennsylvania, um, you know, a son of a single mother who wasn't particularly well off and a pretty anxious kid, I was always very uncertain In other words, I I didn't know if the bus was going to come. I didn't know if my mom was going to pick me up at soccer. I was always anxious about these things. And when my brother started taking philosophy classes, he's four years older than me, and started bringing home his philosophy textbooks and philosophy books. Um, I was 14 at the time and I started to go through them. And because I thought that, uh, philosophy was going to give me answers. And it was going to give me certainty. And I sort of thought about the love of wisdom as this way to sort out all of your problems and all of your questions and all of your anxieties. And what I discovered uh, when I was 17 um, is that philosophy doesn't do that at all. In fact, it can deepen your anxieties, your questions, and your uncertainties. And at its best, allows you to handle that uncertainty in a complex and mature way. Now, why, what happened when I was 17? Well, um, I went to a place called the Pennsylvania governor school for international studies at, um, the university of Pittsburgh. And I met a, uh, professor by the name of John (laughs) Trappigan. You, you, uh, taught us, um, cultural anthropology, uh, ethnographic research for a summer. I was between my junior and senior year, and I remember distinctly you teaching us this lesson about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And for those of you who don't know what the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is, I didn't at the time, um, was it's basically the, the idea that our linguistic practices determine the way that we think about the world and the way that we structure reality, which for me was my first real philosophical lesson, because I was at the same time reading uh, Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, and there's that uh, really famous expression in Godot where he says, nothing is certain, which is what, um, in fact, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis also suggests, in the sense that um, the way that we're brought up, the conventions that we learn through our language, structure the way that reality works. Now, uh, for me, at the age of 17, John, you gave me a bit of an existential crisis. <laughs> I'm and, sorry about it, that. <laughs> but it also drove me into philosophy and into thinking about philosophy in a new sort of way. And so since then, I've been attracted to philosophers who reflect something of an admission of uncertainty. The idea that um, we can be humble. About our epistemic views, that we can maintain a type of what is philosophers call epistemic humility uh, about the truths that we hold. And so I've been drawn to the ancients, in Socrates and Plato. Um, I've been drawn to the 19th century philosophers, Frederick Nietzsche, the pragmatists, the transcendentalists, all of whom reflect um, quite clearly on. Um, what it is to be uncertain about something. Now, as a philosopher, your question was, as a philosopher and memoirist, how did it, it affect you? Well, you you got a little taste of that with my recounting of um, PGSI or, the, you know, Pennsylvania Governor's School for International Studies and also the sapir Wharf Hypothesis. But I think my real first experience in, in um, philosophy and uncertainty and humility was experienced in the Alps when I was 19. And this was the first part of hiking with Nietzsche. I went in search of uh, Nietzsche's great ideas about the will to power, and I tried to follow his trail in Sils Maria. But the fact of the matter is, is that I wasn't a very good philosopher at the time, and I wasn't a particularly good uh, hiker at the time. And so I went off the trail in a pretty radical way, both getting lost, literally, up in the mountains above Sils Maria for three days, uh, you know, thinking that you know a lot, but then discovering you know n- absolutely nothing, and mm-hmm. then I also um, discovered that Nietzsche's philosophy breeds not certainty but rather self-doubt and uh, self-criticism, uh, and that um, has traced me through the rest of my ch- chase and traced me through the rest of my professional uh, life, which I'm sure we'll get to in the rest of uh, in the rest of the program, but to you. Uh, can you give me an example or a situation in which you were clearly, and I'm going to share one of these, I'm sure later, but where you were clearly wrong about your thinking and how it then influenced you?
1: Yeah, I I think um, first of all the this this tendency of certain certain types of scholarship to undermine our sense of of um, epistemic certainty is powerful. And I, the way you present this is, I think, really important because it, it puts us in a difficult situation where we tend to typically walk around thinking, you know, okay, this is the way things are. But all of a sudden we start walking around thinking, I have no idea how things are. In fact, I'm very unclear. And this gets right down to our core into things like ethics, morality, how we think about right and wrong. And so, um, I think this is really important for us as, as people to be able to find that space where we can really question those fundamental things. And people aren't doing that very well right now. And certain scholars like Nietzsche and others certainly push us into that as for mistakes. Well, I've made quite a few, um, but the one that kind of immediately comes to mind, um, you know, graduate students, uh, you know, I was doing my PhD at the university of Pittsburgh and, and, um, graduate students have a way of being pretty convinced they know a whole lot and and they, they do they've learned a lot and and you know so they're they've got things going pretty well and things went pretty well for my um, my graduate program went very well for me I was I you know things kind of happened the way I wanted them to happen and it, it was um, a lot of fun studying anthropology and I had you know, Plan to go to Japan. Um, Spent a lot of time, of course, learning the language. The Japanese language is, is um, at once, strangely difficult and not difficult. Um, it's it's quite distant from English. Um, so grammatical structures are very different from the way English works, and and of course, reading it is a challenge because of the kanji. But the other side of it, it's um, remarkably consistent. Um, you don't have much in the way of irregular. Things that happen in Japanese, and and it all of the sounds in Japanese exist in English, so it's very easy for us to pronounce the language. And um, so I did all this study, and I got ready to go in the field. And as an anthropologist, typically what you do is you apply for grant money. It's very expensive to go do field work. You know, you have to live in another place for anywhere from one to two years. You got to get there. So I applied for a Fulbright, and uh, I was quite surprised I got it. And, um, when you apply for a Fulbright, or at least at that time, you had to write a a two page proposal that, um, said, this is what I plan to do. And, you know, so you're, you're doing a typical research proposal. It's short, but, um, you know, it's, it's laying out your plans. Well, I went there and I had actually built my plans off of a pilot study I had done, um, the summer before I applied for the Fulbright. So I had ideas in my head about what I was going to do. And I was just wrong. Um, what I thought was going on there based on the pilot study and all sorts of reading I had done about Japan. I mean, read basically everything you could read on the anthropology of Japan. And I had gone with the idea of studying, um, what were called lifelong learning centers, which are, are, um, basically community centers in the town where I do my research. And, um, I was interested in how older people engage in those centers as a way to um, kind of have successful aging. And I discovered they weren't important. Um, In fact, what was important was a game that they played called Gateball. And really what was important was the activities that they did to um, try to stave off the onset of senile dementia. And there's a term in Japanese, bokeh, which was used, it's changed quite a bit since then. This is 20 plus years ago, but um, it's changed. And the the, the concept of, of senile dementia was actually intertwined with moral ideas. And so that's what I wound up writing about. So if you went and read my dissertation and you had first read my Fulbright proposal, you would think, what in heaven's name was he doing? He didn't do what he said he was going to do. And on the one hand, I think this is based on an error. Um, I think I, I thought I really understood things pretty well when I was going to go into the field. On the other hand, um, I had by doing the field work, I had everything disrupted in my way of thinking about things. And this is one of the things that field work can, can really do. Um, I mean, I got there. I had studied Japanese for five years and I thought I was pretty good at it. And I could not understand a word my interlocutor said. And the reason for that was because in that part of Japan, older people speak with a very thick dialect. The words are even different from standard Japanese. So a phrase like, um, well, just the word yes in in Japanese is hi. And um, in that area, they say n'danda. (laughs) It just gets worse from there. And so... um, I struggled. I spent nine months just trying to learn the language after having spent five years trying to learn the language. Um, I found that things that people did were based on very different assumptions about the world from my own assumptions. And so, in essence, the fieldwork disrupted everything. And I think that was really good. Um, And I tell my students now um, that when they go into the field or when they're doing any kind of research, if, if they come away with the answer they thought they were going to get, they ought to think twice about that because it questions whether or not they learned something or whether they just sort of imposed something on, on what they were trying to understand. And so in a sense, I was, quite, I was very much mistaken in what I thought was going on, even after having done a pilot study, but um, I think it was good that I had that experience because it turned it into something where I could more deeply um, encounter what was going on because I, everything became uncertain. And pretty much as quickly as I got there, it just all kind of came unglued. And so um, assumptions got challenged. And, you know, I think this is important for all of us to think about even very basic assumptions that we have, like the value of liberty or, the idea of what truth is or beliefs about things like the right to gun ownership, or however we think about these things that, you know, that ensures safety and freedom. Um, It doesn't necessarily do that. It's different in different places. And, and um, ethnography is a, is a humbling experience. It um, has a way of challenging those assumptions in part because it shows you that your assumptions are wrong, (laughs) that in fact, other people simply don't start with those same ideas and, but what they do makes perfectly good sense if you understand those, those basic ideas. And so, um, I, I think it, it sort of forces a kind of epistemic humility on us. And, and so, um, I think one of the things that has intrigued me, um, is what exactly or how how does philosophy talk about this idea of epistemic humility? You raised this in, in a you know, point you were making about the, the Greek philosophers and some of the others. And I certainly know in, in my own work, um, I spent a lot of time reading the work of Richard Rorty, which I think is very much about this this sense that we, we can't grab onto things, everything's contingent. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how does
0: philosophy deal with this issue of epistemic humility? Um, I'm happy to do that. Um, but I'd also like to Um, say something about what um, just came to mind about your description. So it seems to me that there's a way where you understand your own uncertainty or your own flaws. You have the ability to do so rather slowly over an extended period of time, which seems um, like what you did when you were in Japan on your Fulbright. It slowly dawned on you that you were off the off the track. Um, there, is, there are, however, however, other ways in which you discover that you're wrong. And so, some of them can be incredibly sudden. And unfortunately, um, my, my experience with uncertainty, um, I'm, I'm a slow learner, which means that I all of a sudden have major problems. And um, I think that that's important to remember as well, that some of the individuals that we're going to hear in this podcast, How to Be Wrong, going to explain how they encountered massive crisis and how they then faced it and moved on others are going to be um quick learners which means that they gradually cultivate epistemic humility over a a period of time but i'm going to share maybe just two very quick experiences because you were kind enough to do so uh, for yourself i i mean i I think things have to be fair as fair here so um so Let me share two. One is um, intellectual or academic and the other is um, very personal. So uh, on the academic or intellectual side, um, I, as John uh, did going through graduate school, moved through graduate school very fluidly, thought that they understood the conventions of academic writing, published a bunch of peer-reviewed journals, ended up getting tenure at a very young age. And then, um, you know, I was 28. And I slowly became kind of bored uh, with the situation that I was in. And I think that this is kind of interesting where you become so certain about something that it does, you do get this feeling of complacency. It's like, you know, things too well, almost. And I think it's a good practice. William James, the philosopher and psychologist says that we should do two things that are difficult every day, just for practice. And uh, one of the things that um, is most difficult is to push yourself out of the certainties that you already have. So I thought I'd try this, but unfortunately what I did is I imported all the confidence that I had from my previous uh, situation into this new situation. So what was the new situation? The new situation is that I wanted, I set a goal for myself. I said, I want to write a trade book. That is to say a book that it's, um, read by more than 10,000 people. And um, I said it at the age of 30 and I said, by the age of 34, I want to be able to do this. And um, somehow I got a contract with a good New York publisher for our Strauss and Giroux and a good, great editor, Eileen Smith. I thought that I was just off to the races again. I thought, oh, this is gonna be simple. I'm just gonna import all of the lessons that I had from graduate school and my academic training I'm gonna lay them out very quickly in this book, and it's gonna be great. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I wrote the entire book. It was called The Wilderness of Books. It's about a library up in New Hampshire, but man, did I take a very literary, philosophical, theoretical, arcane view of this. And I turned it in to Eileen Smith, who's this um uh woman who uh has edited the best writers in the world. And um, I handed her the first draft of A Wilderness of Books. And she called me up and she said, I've read A Wilderness of Books and I think I'm going to cancel the project. Um, she said, this is unacceptable. This reads like a dissertation. And she said, um, I like you, John. So I'm not going to cancel the book. But you have two years to do a full rewrite from scratch. I want to see no, no sentences that are in the first draft, in the second second draft. The only thing that I find compelling about this story is your introduction, where you mention the fact that your father died at the beginning of the narrative, and the fact that you are going through a divorce. You do that in three sentences. You can keep those three sentences. The rest of the book has to change. I would suggest that you write Philo memoir, she said, uh, philosophy tied to memoir. And I got off the phone with her and I wept. And um, it was the first major reversal in my academic life that had occurred. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had been interested in all of these philosophers who were interested in uncertainty, but I really hadn't internalized the message in any way. And over the next two years, I recrafted myself as a writer. Um, and I had the option of giving up. And I thank Eileen for not just closing the project down. And I came very close to closing the project down many times and returning to my safe you know, academic life. Um, but it was brutally hard because I realized that um, to become a better writer, I had to at first become a better person. That's also a lesson with epistemic humility. It's not just about the truth that we hold, but about how we hold them, which has everything to do with our personality and our moral disposition and our existential situation. And so to become a better writer, I had to realize that I had to let go of some of the conventions that I was certain of and to try to reinvent something new, which is by no way easy and no way fully successful to give you a sense when i turned in the second draft i only had to rewrite a quarter of the book so it still was not
1: perfect you know that that's um, let, let me just cut in for a second because Please. the way the way you said that is is really wonderful the the idea that in order to be a better writer you need to you need to be a better person you need to find that and it's the exact same thing that happened when I was doing uh, my field work. I, I had to drop my, my the conventions, the sense of certainty that came from all the stuff I had learned in graduate school and say, no, I've got to let myself be guided by other people. I've got to let them help me to understand this place that I'm in. And give up my my preconceived notions about what it might be and and that's it's a it's a powerful experience it comes with field work typically if you're really attuned to it um, it's also interesting I, I um, editors can be wonderful as painful as they can be I had a, a much smaller but very similar experience so my my road through graduate school at Pitt was relatively smooth but my road up to that point was not smooth i I had um, done my master's degree at Yale and um, social ethics, and then, um, went to the university of Virginia to get a PhD in religious ethics at UVA. And I did not get along well with my advisor. And I think I was pretty stubborn at the time and, um, I'm still pretty stubborn, but, um, I, I was unhappy with the, the situation and I started reading Richard Rorty, which just totally messed me up anyway. And because I realized it's going to be hard to do ethics if you're not even convinced that morality exists. And so this is going to be a challenge. And so, or exists as anything beyond being something that humans generate. Um, and so uh, I left academia for a few years. I spent about four years out in the business world. And one of the things that I was doing was writing. Um, I started. I was a technical writer and technical editor and um, I started writing articles for a magazine and the first one I wrote, I, you know, I had a pretty good idea and the editor did the same thing. He just, he called me up and he said, John, this is awful. It reads like just academic, academic ease. It's just crap. And told me to go back and redo the whole thing. And, um, that was a very humbling experience. It was like, I thought I was a really good writer. And here I am. I'm, I'm a technical writer. I'm writing things for magazines. And this editor tells me it was crap. And, and you know what? It was crap. He was right. And I learned a lot about thinking about the, the, the person at the other end instead of my just conveying my ideas, but thinking about the person at the other end who's going to have to absorb and think about these ideas if they choose to read it. And that I have to write very consciously with that in mind. It changed the way I thought about writing quite a bit. So I, we had very similar experiences with that.
0: Mm. Your, um, your initial question was, how did philosophers, and then I derailed us a little bit. Well, that's a good derail. You, I mean, you, you, um, you said, uh, how did philosophers take up this issue of epistemic mm. humility? And then I'm sure I'm going to ask you what you mean by epistemic mm-hmm. humility next. I'm sure you'll, you know, <laughs> uh, pay me back with that question. Yeah, but, of course. So the, the, the answer to your question, how do philosophers, and here I'm going to speak primarily in the Western tradition because that's what I'm familiar with, deal with epistemic humility. If you look at the origins of ancient Greek philosophy, one of the good candidates to look to is this guy by the name of Socrates. And um, the story of Socrates becoming a philosopher is actually a pretty interesting one when it comes to this topic, because if you uh, were asked the question, um, or rather, if someone came up to you, maybe a good friend came up to you and said to you, hey, John, uh, the Delphic Oracle says that you are the wisest of all men, right? What would you do? I mean, I think that what I'd do is I would, you know, you know, jump up and down, be super happy and go buy myself a nice dinner with my family. I'd be like, ah, the, the happiest of happiest of people. And and I think that that's a reaction that many people have when they have compliments like you're the wisest of all men or women or people. Uh, but what Socrates does is really interesting <laughs> because what Socrates does is he says, no, no, I'm not. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go show you that I'm not. But why or how? He goes out and he talks to all of the supposedly wise people in his community. And he tries to get them to show him that he's not the wisest. But what Socrates discovers, and it's a pretty pivotal discovery, is that these wise, typically men um, in ancient Athens, these wise men in ancient Athens think they know a heck of a lot more than they actually do, which then leads Socrates to agree with the Delphic Oracle, but agree in a weird way. He says, I am the wisest of all men because I know that I do not know. And there is the birth of epistemic humility in the Western tradition, I think. And, um, this idea that you know that you do not know that, you know, that you have certain limitations is, um, at the core of what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. And so philosophers following on Socrates see the love of wisdom, a philosophy, as this quest to go out and investigate the world, to be um, awestruck, to be wonderstruck in the face of the world, um, and to ask the world questions because we don't already have the answers and this and socratic wisdom knowing that you do not know is actually what drives socrates out into the agora into the into the greek marketplace and encourages him to ask questions encourages him to engage with his interlocutors about life's most difficult um problems uh what is justice what is truth what is beauty what is goodness um what is reality and um what should become clear in the Platonic Dialogues is that there are no easy answers to this. In fact, most dialogues leave us with more questions than answers. And you might want to say to yourself, like, what's the value of that? Well, we'll talk about, I mean, that's one of the things that we're going to talk about over the course of this podcast. So I've been drawn to individuals well, individuals like Socrates, but also to the Stoics, a Hellenistic philosophy, which basically says something like, Human beings are um, set in a cosmic context, um, a large part of which we cannot make sense of, and we are determined by factors outside of our control. In you know, in large part, not completely, but in large part, the Stoics make this claim. I think that this idea that um, that we are situated in a particular context, that the knowledge claims that we make are always at least partial and provisional, that's what Stoicism gives us, okay? Um, and then I'm, then similarly, I'm, I'm um, drawn to 19th century philosophy um, because I think it resuscitates this idea of um, being humble in the face of our own knowledge. I'm thinking about uh, individuals like Arthur Schopenhauer writing at the beginning of the 19th century Schopenhauer is um, usually regarded as a pessimist, which I think um, knowing that you do not know and knowing that you are fallible and knowing that you have limitations could be seen as a type of pessimism. Well, not really. It's just a form of anti-arrogantism, you know, anti-hubris. And Schopenhauer gives us this um, at the beginning of the 19th century, especially um, in his uh, work called uh, "Studies in Pessimism." Uh, and his attunement to human suffering, to human fallibility, all seem very realistic to me. All seem like um, things that we can learn about in a society that seems hell-bent on um, solidifying our truths and uh, pushing them against polar, you know, polar opposites. So Schopenhauer says we should have a little bit of, at the end of studies in the first chapter in studies and pessimism, he says, we should have a little bit of forbearance for each other because we are so fallible. I think that's a really interesting lesson. And then from there, I mean, we move into American transcendentalism uh, where Ralph Waldo Emerson says, yes, you should trust yourself, but you should also realize that you are radically fallible and that um, any action that you take in life is coupled with an equal and opposite reaction. You should realize that um and Henry David Thoreau uh, working through his journals showing us that um, he is fallible and um, trying to be humble and learning from his mistakes um, then into Frederick Nietzsche a, in the second half of the 19th century and into American pragmatism all of these 19th century movements actually turn on how to handle uncertainty and that's what attracts me as a philosopher and what has philosophy, what philosophy has um, taught me at least in part over the course of 42 years mm-hmm. Yeah I think the
1: um, it's a very interesting thought about pessimism and it, I actually myself see that um, that uncertainty as being a cause for optimism because the way I see it is if we're not locked in by these preconceived notions if we realize that there are limitations that were fallible, then we actually have the opportunity to creatively take what we know or what we think we know and create the world we want to have rather than simply reacting to a world that we think is wrong and we don't want to have. So I think uh, for me, um, recognizing kind of radical uncertainty becomes a basis for agency. It means not only can we do things, we should do things, we ought to do things to make the world the way that we want it to be. And I think it's also interesting because anthropology also emerges from a kind of a similar 19th century anthropology, you know, where anthropology comes from, but it emerges from a similar awareness that the things that we assume are normal, aren't normal. Um, uh, one of the the founders of anthropology is a, a guy named Louis Henry Morgan, American anthropology. And he... Um, was living in upstate New York and he, uh, got interested in the Iroquoian people that were around him and he started studying. Uh, one thing he studied was their kinship patterns. And he discovered that, uh, their kinship patterns weren't like Euro American kinship patterns and Euro Americans had always assumed that these were just natural. Um, you know, you have an uncle and you have an aunt and you have your children and, um, the Iroquoian system works on the idea that your father's brothers are your father and your mother's sisters are your mother. And so you have multiple mothers and multiple fathers. And this creates a very interesting thing because your um, your parallel cousins, so your father's brother's children and your mother's sister's children, are your siblings. And your cross cousins, um, meaning so your father's sister's children and your mother's brother's children are, are um, their cousins, basically. So you can marry your cousins. You can't marry your siblings. And one of the things that this showed was that you take something that often has been presented like the incest taboo as being universal. Well, it's not. There is usually some sort of incest taboo in human societies, but how it operates depends upon how people reckon their relationships to others. And they think about the nature of kinship and there are lots of different ways to do that. And so in the late 19th century and in the 20th century, anthropologists were realizing that there are a lot of different ways to organize human beings. And there isn't necessarily one way that's better than another way. They're just different. And, uh, anthropologist named Ruth Benedict at one point said something along the lines of that the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human diversity, to recognize that there are simply a lot of different ways to put what we do together that make sense. And much like what you're talking about with, with philosophy, this, this generates just a, a kind of sense of epistemic humility because you realize that you take things for granted as normal in the world. But somebody else, you know, like like the way we think about how we're related to each other, but somebody else does it differently. And if you unpack the way they do it, there's a logic there. It makes perfectly good sense. It's just different. And so, um, this has a way of really undermining, uh, I guess, the kind of smug and un uninquisitive way of looking at the world that gets right back to this kind of. It's a sort of a tacit arrogance about the world. It's it's not even sort of overt. It's just sitting underneath saying, yeah, the way I do things is natural and normal, but in fact,
0: it's not. Mm. Let me jump in on that. So I, I think that, um, the two things, one is, I think the history of philosophy shows us a number of cases where, um, it becomes apparent that the certainties that we hold create a certain type of like constraint to our life. It creates a certain structure. To our life. And that structure can be appealing to us and comforting to us and convenient for us, even if it allows us to live less than flourishing lives. I'm thinking about this case that um, the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard brings out. He calls it the demoniac. And the demoniac is this figure from um, the the, um, Gospel of Mark in the Bible. The demoniac is this character that Jesus comes across that who's sitting in a corner, all chained up, and he's cutting himself with stones. And uh, Jesus comes up and tries to heal the man. And the man says, just go away, Jesus, leave me alone in my chained little corner with my stones. And we can think about this. I think we can think about this in terms of limiting the possibilities of life. What the demoniac has done is he's seized upon certain types of certainties the certainty of his chains the certainty of his stones the certainty of the order of his life but what we see clearly and what Kierkegaard tries to pull out is that this type of insular certainty this type of solipsistic uh certainty is in fact a real demo- demonic way of being and jesus comes up and says hey you know, I'm going to exercise these demons. The demoniac says, get away. Because for the demoniac, the scariest possibility is simply possibility. It's the, it's the idea of waking up in the morning and not having the certainties that you once held dear. And so I think that the issue about being wrong is somewhat similar. It's, it's the feeling that I'd have to sacrifice something of myself if I admitted that I was wrong if I admitted that I was fallible. And Jesus, it it turns out in the the book, Kierkegaard observes, he says, Jesus does succeed. He exercises the demons and the demons come out in mass, he says, like the legion. Uh, And um, Jesus places the demons in in a bunch of pigs who run off of a cliff and the man lives freely, happily ever, uh, well, maybe not freely, happily ever after, but at least embracing possibility in a way that he hadn't previously, one aspect of the story is important, I think, is that um, the demonic is a potential in all of us that is so that when he exercised the demons, the demons come out in mass, which means um, we all have the certainties that we you know hold on to as, as dear or true. And the question is, are these certainties the type that are letting us lead flourishing, original, spontaneous? creative lives or are they the type that have us in chains cutting ourselves so that's one sort of comment that came out of your com- you know your your comments um i'll also say this though one last thought about 19th century philosophy is that frederick nietzsche is famous for saying that god is dead right making that observation but what nietzsche is really saying is that the 19th century with German higher criticism, which is a way of reading the Bible as a historical document, not the Word of God, um, evolutionary theory with Darwin, the rise of capitalism and consumerism, they really kill a lot of the sources of sources of authority that had sedimented or created the boundaries of our life prior to the 19th century. And when he says God is dead, he's saying we have the possibility to live freely. So it's a, it's a challenge to us to figure out what it is to live with existential uncertainty. Um, and and it, it's not a pessimistic observation, as Schopenhauer would have it, but rather a challenge um, and potentially optimistic, as you so nicely put, put it earlier. So let me, let me ask you a question. So when it comes to epistemic humility or intellectual humility, what does it mean? Uh, okay, for you as an anthropologist.
1: Well, I'm going to answer that by kind of responding to what you were just talking about, because the things you were just saying in relation to D.C. and to, you know, this this sort of question about um, how we, how certainty can become a, a sort of a, a or, or, or embracing the idea of uncertainty can become a way to sort of open up. Uh, this is very much what, what Buddhism is about. in it's, it's sort of great, um, insight that, that in Buddhism, uh, sort of the key to everything is to recognize that, um, the source of our pain and our suffering is our clinging to the idea that things aren't changing, which is another way of saying clinging to the, the desire to have certainty, to think things are certain. And so if you think about it, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'll put you in the spot. So you, you, you said a few minutes ago, you had been through a divorce. Um, I'm going to assume that you were, were upset after that, right? Well, I've been through two divorces. Okay. Dude.
0: Well, yeah. Then, so uh, of course I, of course I yeah. was upset. Yeah. Well, why were you upset? Because you think that, um, you, th- you really think that things are going to last and you right. cling to them. <laughs> exactly. And
1: we often don't recognize that. We, we, When we go through a massive change, we think what's really hurting us is the fact that things collapsed or they changed or something like that. But what's really causing it from a Buddhist perspective is that we cling to the way things were and the assumption that they never would change. But, you know, anyone who's been married for any length of time realizes that the person that you married is different from the person you're married to 30 years later. Like I am, I still love my wife. She's a wonderful human being, but she's not the same person and I'm not the same person. And so, um, Buddhism really, um, that's kind of one of the great insights in Buddhism. And it's, it's very similar to the things that you're talking about is that when, when you get there, when you can begin to, uh, really sort of shift your view of the world to kind of accepting the fact that it's uncertain, then it's changing. There's always this kind of churning going on it becomes much less painful in the sense that you stop kind of holding on to things that that it, it's holding on to the illusion that things aren't changing they won't change and um and now i think i've forgotten the question that you were you asked me so what was it what was i supposed to answer so what is epistemic humility right so um i actually think that is epistemic humility from my perspective it's it's First of all, it's a uh, a shedding of this kind of arrogant sense that the way I've been raised to think about things, the way that I've come to think about things is, is solid, for one thing, that it can't change uh, because it is changing. Whether I think it's changing or not, it's changing. Um, I am not the same person I was. 49 minutes ago when we started this conversation, because you've changed me. Our talking has changed me. I'm different now. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think then as an anthropologist, uh, at the core of this is the, the recognition that there is no single way for humans to organize themselves, to, to do culture, to um, do social interaction. There are many, many, many different ways to do this. And in fact, a great deal of our struggles as, as societies um, and as groups come from this you know, same kind of thing, clinging on to the idea that, well, okay, what my particular branch of Christianity or Islam or whatever else it is has the truth and everybody else is wrong. Well, what that actually does is it creates a great deal of pain for those people who think that because they're so frustrated with everybody else who can't see that they've got the truth. And so I think epistemic humility is letting go of that is letting go of the sense that, well, I can have my beliefs and I can have my ideologies. There are other ones that make sense. And really the, the interesting thing, (coughs) the thing that really is exciting about being human is learning about those other ways of putting things together, which may in some ways challenge what I think is natural, but I can still continue thinking what I think. I think being challenged is positive. Um, but recognizing that there's this kind of sort of magnificent array of things out there that humans generate and create, um, I think allows us to live as, as you kind of put it as in a, in an environment where we're thinking in terms of creativity, thinking in terms of generation and, and, Creating the world that we live in, rather than being subject to the world that we live in. So that that's how I look at it.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think I think a little bit about um, epistemic humility as a process um, and sort of steps that one can take um, to cultivate a particular orientation to the to the world and to the certainties that we have. I'm I'm reminded of at least three of the sayings over the Delphic Oracle in in the temple at the temple of Delphi. At the temple, um, it was inscribed, uh, know thyself, uh, surety and then ruin. Surety then ruin is another of the expressions and uh, nothing in excess, okay? And those three, when you tie those three together, I think it gives us a good basis for starting to think about the process of cultivating epistemic humility, I, I think you need something like self-reflection at first. So, um, this process of knowing thyself is one that doesn't seem to have a lot of monetary value today, and so sometimes it's really, um, sometimes it's really overlooked. So you, so know thyself, okay, and then you acknowledge the context in which you're situated. Um, so acknowledge the context. So know thyself, acknowledge the context. And then when you acknowledge the context, you, by virtue of acknowledging context, I think you acknowledge your own limitations. Uh, so the fact that your horizon or your point of view terminates at particular in particular um, aspects. Uh, and when you look out into the world, you can't see certain things. Um, You can't understand certain things. And I think that that's uh, one of the first steps to um, epistemic humility. And then the process of, this is kind of weird. It's uh, the careful evaluation, I think, of those subjects that lie beyond our ken. What I mean by that is those things that we don't understand I don't it's not when I say a careful evaluation of those things we don't understand is not simply the move to say, oh, I get them now. It's to say, um, what don't I get? How must I approach this subject that I really can't grasp? Is there something definitionally that I can't get about this subject? or can I get a little bit more clarity about it if I take this point of view? So that's what I mean by carefully assessing or evaluating subjects that lie beyond our ken. And I think that honestly, once you go through those four moves, the self-reflection, the acknowledgement of context, the acknowledgement of limitations, and then the careful evaluations of those things beyond our ken, you can actually begin to use that process to um, remaining open possibility and opportunity and situations in the world that you work through okay um so and in the process i think you also get a chance to do something that's fairly rare in today's society which is the process of forgiving yourself and forgiving others for their own mistakes for the ways that they've um for the ways that they've actually erred either in minor ways or very grievously. Um, And then to move on through that sort of for, you know, process of forgiveness. Now it sounds very, it sounds very Buddha and Buddhist, doesn't it? (laughs) So uh, to, to understand the nature of human responsibility. So to say, I am this sort of person who can acknowledge, do the best I can at acknowledging my errors. One of the dangers of this is something that philosophers me included oftentimes run into which is if you think that you have a particular corner or a particular advantage in the process of self-reflection it's almost certain that you don't and uh so but so to understand something of the nature of human responsibility to ask probing questions about a world that you don't understand fully um I think epistemic humility main, entails maintaining a sense of wonder about the nature of reality and social interactions, and wonder that oftentimes is um, overlooked, uh, especially if we give in to the demo- demonic or the demonic.
1: But I think that insight, John, has, there are some very, very practical and immediate consequences of taking that position. And one of them is that we, we have to be able to put ourselves in the perspective of people that we don't want to put ourselves in the perspective of or who we don't like. And you know, a big part of the problem that countries like the United States are facing right now is you've got this extremely bifurcated political context, and at both ends, neither one is willing to step into the shoes of the other and at least try to make sense of how they got where they got. It, it doesn't mean you have to adopt it, but that self-reflection and then turning that around and saying, I'm going to throw myself into contexts that sort of challenge my way of doing things. That's one way That's one way to do that process. And throwing myself into that context is going to undermine my sense of certainty about, oh, this political position that I take, yeah, this is true. This is the way it must be. Because, you know, so I'm, I'm you know, politically, I'm, I'm somewhere over on the left side of things, and, and I'm not a big fan of, of what's happening on the right. But I think it's absolutely essential to try to place myself into that position and try to understand it, because it isn't lacking in a logical structure. There's a structure there. It makes sense. If you start with the same assumptions that people from that perspective start with, and the same thing is true if you look at the left, it's... it's but that means really abandoning the notion that our assumptions about things are unequivocal, that, they, um, that there's no you know, no, no, uncertainty in our assumptions about things.
0: Right. I mean, I think a little bit about William James, one of my philosophical heroes, and he has this essay called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. And in the essay, James argues that he, he actually rec- recounts a trip that he made to Appalachia. And he looks around the communities up in the mountains and James coming from Cambridge can't see the beauty in any of these rural communities. They just seem really ugly to him. And then James has the self-reflective moment where he says, I'm coming from a particular context which fails to see the inner lives of these individuals that I'm encountering. And I'm gonna try, as you say, to understand these lives as as vibrant as my own. Now that's not to understand fully their context, but rather to at least acknowledge that it's possible that these individuals have, as you said, a certain type of logic to their lives. And that that logic is as valid for them and as life-giving for them as the logic of living in Irving Street on in Cambridge next to Harvard University, as, as it was for James. And so I think um, we all, I mean, David Foster Walls talks about a sort of default setting of innate self-centeredness. And I think that um, James is tapping into that and sort of speaking to it. And I think that that's what this podcast, How To Be Wrong, is also going to try to do. So uh, let me ask you, um, or, or let me volunteer because i mean i i need to be more honest about my mistakes which i guess is what uh epistemic humility is also about so i mean you, let me just give you two very very personal um cases so uh, when i was in college i i was on the swimming te- swim team at penn state and then i was on the rowing team at penn state i thought i was really fit And I just thought it was a little weird that I passed out after events, right? I mean, it was just kind of strange that I just would, uh, you know, collapse and go into mini seizures after a strenuous event, just kind of weird, right? And time passes and time passes. And then I reach the age of 40 and I'm running on a treadmill at a very good clip. I'm pretty, you know, I was still in good shape. I hop off the treadmill after thinking that I did my six miles. And I lay down on the floor and go into one of these little seizures. But but unfortunately, I didn't just go into a seizure. I went into full cardiac arrest. And um, they had to shock me back on the floor of University of Massachusetts' old gym. And then they took me to Tufts Medical Center. And they diagnosed me with abnormal right coronary artery, which is the leading cause. It's a congenital condition that affects young athletes. And it's the leading cause of death in young, young athletes. And I've had, and I had it since I was 40 and I went through bypass surgery at the age of 40 and that mistake, the realization that I had been sort of completely blind to something that could have killed me. For a very long time, and willingly so. I mean, I could have gone and gotten checked. Many people said, "John, go get checked. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong." This, but my own little demonic, my own little demonic way. I just wanted to ignore them, and, um, and I will say that in my first two uh, marriages, it was pretty much the same way. That all the signs were there, and I just ignored them, ignored them, ignored them until it was too late and i think that um you know, and and that is not to place the blame elsewhere the, the the blame is uh equally shared and part of the blame is to not acknowledge the errors that you are already committing and i think so i just wanted to be honest about that but let me turn um quickly john can you say a little bit about um There's this famous uh, book called Anthropology as Cultural Critique. Um, And I'd like you to do a little cultural critique. Um, Can you take a look at our own culture and see where maybe a lack of humility is popping up and um, how it might be uh, counteracted?
1: Well, it's, it's popping up in a lot of places, as I said, you know, the, the political environment is one place where it's clearly popping up, but it's another place that I think it's been profoundly problematic is in the debate between science and religion and the idea that, um, that these two are necessarily opposed. Uh, first of all, that, that isn't the case at all. Um, it's it's interesting to me again because I've spent so much time in Japan. This debate doesn't exist in Japan to speak of. There isn't really a conflict between Buddhist ideas and and and, and science. And in fact, Buddhism is a kind of a system for describing the world in terms of causality, and so um, it kind of sets up pretty well with with um, you know modern science. But there is a tendency on both sides of the Western or at least the American religion science debate to dig in one's heels and say, my epistemology, the scientific epistemology or the epistemology that's that's grounded in the idea that faith is a, is a reasonable way to know about the world, that this is the only way one can gain knowledge and that any other way of gaining knowledge is at least minimally suspect and probably not good. And you see this, you know, I, I mean, I, I like the work of, of um, uh, Richard Dawkins, his, his, you know, it's his really interesting work. I, he's, I was reading his work in graduate school and, and, and found it to be uh, very good. Um, but he also takes this very strong position that the only possible way you can know anything is through scientific method. Well, that is not a humble perspective because that isn't the only way you can know things. Um, I mean, I'm a musician. I know things as a result of playing music and and know things that I can't put into words, but I know it because of the way I interact with other musicians. And, um, and that's not scientific. That's based on feeling and emotion and aesthetics and, and the sensibility to other people. Um, and while I, I am certainly someone who would not say I have any faith. I have no faith, uh, any kind of religious faith. I can't discount the possibility that other people can know based upon this intuitive sense that comes out of their religious beliefs that they term faith. Again, I don't have to, I don't have to agree with where they get to, but I think, you know, then the, on the religion side, what often happens is sort of the same thing we see on the science side, just turned around a different way. Well, the only way you can really know truth is your relationship with God or faith or whatever that is, that both of those perspectives, in my view, are arrogant. They're taking the perspective that there's no other way we can know. And um, so for me, uh, getting at epistemic humility is getting at a way to let go of that arrogance and to Actually, be open to perspectives that might be really quite different from my own. That that really I probably don't agree with because I'm I'm not a religious person. I'm not a big fan of of what uh, happens in a lot of religion. And so, um, at the same time, I don't think it's right to discount that perspective. I think we have to find ways to make sense out of it. And so that that's really how I would I would put this together. Um, you know, I I don't know. What do you think of that? that way of looking at things.
0: I think, I think that's right. And I mean, one of the, one of the um, reasons why James, William James is so attractive to me is that he tried to overcome those polarizing positions. I mean, he's um, working at the late 19th century and he's trying to find a way for seemingly incompatible views, namely science and religion to work together. And um, that's one of the most interesting aspects of James. I think in part, one of the concerns that I have is that where you should find epistemic humility, from my way of thinking, should at least in part be in academia. And I think um, at least my experience in academia has been one in which I don't see epistemic humility actually being reflected in in any sort of consistent or concerted way. Which is why we're going to invite a lot of academics into this podcast so that they can speak to their um, experiences in being wrong and being mistaken and being human and fallible. Because I think one of the, distru- the the distrust that a certain type of the American population has of academia is that it oftentimes come across it comes across as a know-it-all. Where whereas at honestly at its base, what we as academics, as professors should be doing is not professing, which means to sort of give forth the good word, but rather encouraging a type of reflective inquisitiveness about the world and a critical, you know, basically a critical approach to a world that we do not fully understand. And I can uh, uh, sort of Point to a number of different factors in the modern university that leads to this type of um, professing instead of uh, questioning. Um, I think that uh, the creation of departments. I think that the you know formation of academic jargon, which sometimes is necessary but oftentimes is not. Um, I think I think the sort of tenure process and the concentration on graduate education instead of undergraduate education. All of these factors. Um, encourage us as academics to forget where we came from which is i hope initially a wonder about our subjects and a wonder about the world and certainly i want to be able to give that to my students my readers and my listeners Um, and i and i have every confidence that the the guests that we have um on this program uh still remember why they went into um, the professions that they have or the lives that they lead, which I think is at first wonder. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, one of the greatest mathematicians um, of the 20th century, said that um, philosophy begins in wonder, quoting Plato, and when philosophy runs its course, the wonder should remain. And I think that that's the case with any type of intellectual engagement as well. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be part of this podcast.
1: Mm. Yeah. You uh, pretty much took the words right out of my mouth. I was thinking what you said right before you started saying it, that the the structures of the academic world actually have a way of, of making it difficult to be this way, being, making it difficult to be humble about what we think we know. You're, you're supposed to be right. You're supposed to publish the answer to things. And of course, um, If one really thinks about it, we realize we never publish the answer to anything. But um, there is this very strong, you know, kind of push in the academic world to have the big discovery or make the big point and and be right. And um, that needs to go away. Actually, I think that's deeply harming the way the academic world works. Um, There are a lot of other things that are causing problems in the academic world too, Uh, but. Uh, things like this idea of measuring people in terms of how much they publish and did they get it in the right journal and this kind of thing uh, really has a way of forcing people to think in terms of having the big moment instead of wondering about the world and thinking and trying to encourage other people to think and, and, and both through their writing and through their teaching. So yeah, I think this is where, where I hope we will be able to take the podcast and, and, Get some really interesting people in to talk about these kinds of questions. Um, I guess we're pretty close to finishing up this episode. Do you have anything else you want to add on this? No, I have
0: to say that it's been a it's been a lot of fun, and mm. um, I really look forward to talking to our first guest. Um, can you tell us a little bit about our first guest, John? I have not figured out who our first guest is going to be. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm
1: wrong about that. We do know who our first guest is. Yes. Um, I was thinking kind of next guest after that. Um, Our first guest is going to be Marshall Poe, who is the creator of the New Books Network and um, who will be the first to tell you he's made many mistakes. Um, But one of the things that's really interesting about Marshall and, and my experience working with him over the years with the New Books Network is that He's a remarkably creative individual. He's got lots of ideas and he's very open to going in new directions and, and finding new things. And I think, um, having, you know, had, he's had some pretty interesting experiences, including, you know, being a professor and, and, uh, being a, I think he was an editor at the Atlantic and he's done a whole bunch of different things. Um, but that willingness to take and go in new directions is also, I think, a sign that one doesn't take one's current spot too seriously and is open to being challenged. And so I, I think um, Marshall will, will give us some really interesting things to think about in terms of this question of how to be wrong.
0: I, I hope so. I, yeah. and the,
1: um, I think so. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Well, until our next episode, um, this uh, has been a great conversation. And I hope our listeners will find lots of interesting things to think
0: about. Thanks for joining us on How to Be Wrong.